Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Raid. I'm a naturopathic doctor, and today I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Nicole Fujiyama, also a naturopathic doctor. And uh, thank you for joining me today, Dr. Nicole. And if you don't mind just introducing yourself to our guests, that would be great, please. Hi. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. My name is Dr. Nicole Fujiyama. I am a naturopathic doctor and acupuncturist, and I specialize in helping adults with autoimmune disease manage their symptoms and get into remission without using medication. Perfect. Um, and just to kind of put this interview into a bit of context, because uh, of course it's the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. So uh, folks with autoimmune disease, um, those are typically chronic illnesses, but a lot of folks listening have or have not been formally diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. They might've been diagnosed with uh, chronic infections like related to Lyme disease or Epstein-Barr virus or mold illness, or they have labels like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, et cetera. So one of the reasons that I wanted to chat with you today, um, Dr. Nicole, is because in my experience, so much of the pathophysiology of autoimmunity is something that overlaps with a number of those other conditions. A lot of the therapies that are helpful, like therapies that are immunomodulating, anti-inflammatory, um, tissue healing, they very much overlap between autoimmunity and those other chronic maladies. So if anybody listening is like, oh, I don't have an autoimmune disease, you know, why are we, I won't listen to this uh, podcast episode. Um, this very much would still apply um, to these other cases too. Um, also, just before we get into the meat and potatoes of the chat here, um, just for, uh, as with all the podcast episodes, uh, nothing that we talk about is uh, medical advice. This is all for informational purposes only. Um, if you need medical advice, please talk to your healthcare provider. So with all that out of the way, um, Dr. Nicole, would you mind um, just sharing with us what types of autoimmune conditions you tend to treat the most? Yes. So I definitely see Hashimoto's the most. Um, that's probably the majority of patients I see, uh, usually women with Hashimoto's. Mm -hmm. um, I also have seen uh, people who have Graves' disease, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's, um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. I think those would be the main ones, but definitely Hashimoto's tends to be the most common and the most, um, the most people I treat. Mm -hmm. And with the patients with Hashimoto's that you work with, what would be the like top three to five symptoms that those patients would typically be presenting with? Oh yeah. So usually it's fatigue for sure. Mm -hmm. Hair loss, weight gain, mm -hmm. I would say. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think the fatigue symptom is something that just seems to span like pretty much any type of complex chronic illness, you know, fatigue yes. is such a, <laughs> such an issue. And, and uh, one of the things that I um, talk about a lot and think about a lot and work on a lot in practice is a uh, mitochondrial function. And I, I think on some of your uh, social media posts, you've you know, uh, touched on mitochondrial function as well. Um, mm -hmm. Would you be able to speak to um, the way in which mitochondrial function is sort of tied in with autoimmunity, if, if at all? Yeah, well, if you start looking at like the fatigue aspect of it, and you start really getting down into like the nitty gritty, gritty of like the cellular um, mechanisms and how those are working, right? So you can really approach just like chronic illness, autoimmune disease, you can approach them at so many different levels. Right. And so if you're looking more at like the cellular level, you really want to look at the mitochondria. Like you're not going to, it's hard to heal if you don't have energy. You know, it's hard to heal if the cells don't have energy to do what the cells need to do. So same with the immune cells. Right. And so, and just really any other cell in your body. So if you're taking it at that level, like really the mitochondria is the place to start. So you want to look like, look at how you can support that. And there's so many different ways that you can support the mitochondria and really support 
all these other mechanisms in your body that are affecting autoimmune disease with very just simple, simple things that you can do. And so I, I just, I, I just started getting into it because, um, I was taking more courses about mitochondria seems to be a hot topic lately. And so no. I was like, yeah, these, these, what you do for mitochondria is very similar for what you would do kind of in naturopathic medicine for really a lot of other places in your body and with chronic illness and autoimmune disease, kind of the same thing. So I was like, this fits perfect into what I'm doing. It's <laughs> nice when things fit together um, conveniently. That's good. What, what yeah. are some of the simple things that you can do uh, that you were alluding to there? If you don't mind touching on that. Yeah. I mean, one of the main things you can do is just exercise. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how many times I, I tell people like really one of the best things you can do if you have an autoimmune disease is to just exercise. Like being sedentary is the worst thing you can do. It'll just make every symptom worse. And I know a lot of people will tell me if they have an autoimmune disease, and I'm sure you hear this from your patients too, that, you know, they're just too tired. Like they can't move, like they don't, they don't have that motivation, but I tell them that as you move, like those mitochondria are going to start reacting to that. And when they do that, they will actually provide more energy for you. And so although you feel tired now, the more you exercise, the more energy you're going to have. And so it sounds kind of um, counterintuitive. Like I don't have energy, so how am I going to exercise? But mm -hmm. that's how you create that energy. And that's what the mitochondria is really going to affect the mitochondria. So really that's like, the best thing you can do. And it's like mm -hmm. one of the first things I recommend my patients to doing if they're not doing it already. I don't know. Like, how about you? Like, how, what is like the first thing you recommend for mitochondria health and just to get them going? Um, I mean, I, I think the exercise recommendation is a good one. Um, and as you touched on so many folks don't feel like they have the, the get up and go to do it in the first place. And, and some folks genuinely don't, especially if they have like, say severe dysautonomias, like POTS or, you know, severe pain or something like sometimes it's, it's really tough to get, uh, appreciable amounts of exercise going. Um, but, uh, for me, I, I look at it more through the lens of, um, what is it that's interfering with their mitochondrial function? So if there are things like mold toxin, like if there's mold toxicity, heavy metals, chronic infections, you know, with viruses or Lyme or co-infections or whatnot, I'm thinking, well, we're going to need to work on those things because those are all mitochondrial suppressants or mitochondrial poisons, depending on the, the topic in question. Um, mm -hmm. But as we're working on that, I'm also thinking about what are all the cofactors that are required for the mitochondria to work, you know, um, you and I, and anybody who's gone to any type of, you know, uh, professional medical school training, uh, you know, whether it's naturopathic medicine, conventional medicine, osteopathic, whatever, we all have to learn, you know, the, all the steps of the glycolysis, the Krebs cycle, the electron transport chain, and, you know, looking at all those myriad cofactors that are required. It's like, man, there are like, mm -hmm. I've, I don't remember the exact number. So like, you know, two dozen individual ingredients um, that we can at least supplement with that are, are needed for those processes. So I, I tend to, uh, relatively early on for, with folks who are fatigued, you know, work with a combination supplement that has all those cofactors in there and just to help really rev up the, uh, kind of the mitochondrial engines to make sure those, uh, cofactors are in place. Um, so that's, that's kind of the approach that I take with it. Yeah. Love it. Oh, I just want to clarify though, too, that when I talk about exercise, um, because I know I, I get that as well too, people are like, why well, I have chronic fatigue. I can't move, you know, mm -hmm. it's really hard for me. And I tell people, um, I think exercise sometimes is not it like it's like a trigger word for some people, you know, it just kind of shuts them off real quick. So I tell them, you know, think of it as movement. Like you, mm -hmm. you can just stretch, like you can just move your arms mm -hmm. and that is still going to stimulate things and get things going, you know? Yeah. So 
I tell people just, and I've had to do this with people. I'm like, just start where you're at. Sometimes starting is just getting them to stand up and sit down like multiple mm-hmm. times in a chair and yeah. that's it. And we start from there and we mm-hmm. just work our way up. And so, you know, just for anyone who was triggered by that exercise word, um, use movement instead. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure despite our uh, caveats, uh, like that was still triggering for some folks, for sure. Um, and me, me too, a little bit. I, I feel like, you know, we, we're so empathetic, um, you know, with our patients. And it's kind of like, oh, like, I feel defensive about that word. But uh, yeah, no, thanks for clarifying. Mo- movement is, is yeah, a good way to frame it. And, um, and it's, it's so true. Like, I, I think that there's on multiple levels, like not even just on a physiological, like on a physical, yeah, physiological level, but even just on like more of like a mental, emotional, you know, energetic level, it's like, well, if I'm just feeling like I'm stuck in bed or stuck in a chair all day, like, you know, it's like, man, one of the goals of all of all of my patients with complex chronic illness is like, I just kind of want to get back to normal life. I kind of want to be like, you know, just a, a normal, like typical person again. And like, well, normal, typical people, like they're, they're, you know, getting up and doing things. So even like just going through those motions of like, okay, yeah, I'm going to stand up, you know, get up out of my chair, get up out of the bed, even if it's just for a second, like, you know, once an hour or something, you know, if, if it's safe and feasible to do that, like even something like that, like I, I think is beneficial on, on a number of levels, even if it's not like quote unquote exercise in the traditional sense. So it's yeah, point. yeah, that's a win folks. It's a win. Like, I think so. I think <laughs> if so. Get, yeah. If you get up out of that bed and mm-hmm. you go walk to the kitchen and you walk by, Hey, it's a win. Like yeah. take it. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think you brought up a really good point too. I don't know if you've noticed this too a lot with just the patient population we see, because I, I see that same um, kind of mindset with my autoimmune patients is that, you know, we have to deal a lot with a lot of that mindset too, right? Because it's not just a physical um, thing that people are going through. It's also a mental, emotional, and it brings a lot of that up. And so I, at least I find in my practice, I'm dealing a lot more with like that mindset about uh, healing and working on that. I don't know if you encounter that as well too. I mean, of course we do all the physical things and the naturopathic things too. Um, but I find that a lot of people also want that as well. And um, I don't know if the pandemic maybe might've kind of spun off on that and, you know, made that more of a concern for people or something that we have to address, but um, I'm definitely seeing more of that. I don't know. How about you? Um, yeah, I, I think that, um, there, there maybe is more of like, or in, in some cases there's kind of that need to kind of coach people or kind of motivate people a little bit more in that way. And and whether we kind of just got used to being like stuck in little pods or something like that, or being stuck, some people getting stuck in their apartments or being more isolated. Um, I, I think that there's probably an, an, an element of that. Um, unfortunately that's kind of residual from the pandemic, which hopefully is, you know, far behind us and will not be an issue again down the road. But um, yeah, I, I, sometimes I feel like, Oh, like, you know, be nice to like, just have a life coach to refer to, or like an occupational therapist to refer folks to, um, to help kind of implement some of these things. Cause what, one of the things that I'm sure you see this in your practice as well, like, you know, patients will come in, they've been sick for a really long time. They've, you know, seen multiple practitioners and, you know, they're coming to see you because they've, you know, heard good things about you, or they've seen your, you know, presence on social media, or like, they've kind of sort of like, quote unquote, got to know you a little bit, you know, online. And they're like, yeah, you know, I, I think you might be able to help me. They come in and, you know, they have their first visit with you. And, you know, I've had so many patients say to me, like, you know, I, I, I have hope again, which, which is a beautiful thing. Um, and it's wonderful that we can start inspiring that in, in our patients. But at the same time, I, I'm sure that after someone's been sick for, you know, 
multiple years, if not multiple decades, there's probably quite a bit of subconscious thought patterns of like, yeah, but are you really ever going to be able to get better? Like, you know, you've been stuck in this pattern for so long. Some people have been like sick for, you know, for more of their lifespan than they've been healthy, depending on their history. So I think part of it, you know, as you were saying is that I think we need to kind of help to kind of coach patients a little bit and just kind of, you know, sort of talk about like, you know, what's, what's possible, you know, what's feasible, um, implementing some of these changes and kind of getting them used to the idea of like, no, no, like we're going to do our darndest to like help get you better, or at least help to improve things. So I, I think the the mindset part of it is, is really important. Yeah, for sure. And I think like you mentioned, it's just setting those realistic expectations, mm-hmm. you know, especially, especially when it comes to chronic illness, like autoimmune diseases, it's like, okay, like this is the goal that you're trying to achieve. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, let's see where you're at and let's see how realistic that goal is. And it's, mm-hmm. I, I think over time it's become an easier conversation for me to have, but I think it's definitely a, a harder conversation to have when you mm-hmm. have someone coming in. Cause you, like you said, you want to give them hope and you want to keep, you know, that hope alive, but you also want to give them a very you know, you want to be realistic about the expectations that they can expect from working with you and from this medicine. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I uh, saw you posted a, a couple of times anyways, on your, on your Instagram is um, just about the autoimmune paleo diet. And mm-hmm. I mean, where you're like the autoimmune doc, of course you must know about the autoimmune paleo diet. So <laughs> could you, uh, would you mind speaking to your experience with that, whether you found it to be helpful? Is it, you know, is it necessary where it's, you know, relatively strict diet is like, how often mm-hmm. is it necessary? Someone go on something, a diet that strict. Could you speak to that a bit, please? Yeah. Um, I think, I know it's such a hot topic, you know, especially when I talk about the diet, it either like people are like, yay, or they're like, you triggered me again. Or like, you know, it like mm-hmm. gets people kind of riled up, mm-hmm. but I just explained to people that the autoimmune paleo diet, it's in naturopathic medicine, food is medicine. So you treat it like this is your medicine. And so it's not a forever thing for some people, but I also let some autoimmune patients know that for you, it could be, Mm. you know, because depending on what is going on with your immune system, depending on what kind of food intolerances you have, because I do do the Carol, Mm. um, evaluations. And so, you know, it's, it just depends on their body. So I tend to ease people in into the autoimmune paleo diet to see if it does have any effect for them. For some people it does, it's, it's magical almost for them. And for some people, it's just not the big trigger that they have, you know, it, they just don't notice as much of a difference. So there's some underlying triggers that we need to then work on and discover. But usually for most people, I would start them on some kind of modified version of it. And it also depends on what kind of autoimmune disease they have. Uh, there's research that show that there are certain foods, food um, immune intolerances that people have specific to those autoimmune diseases. So if they come in with that autoimmune disease, then I'm going to recommend that they start there and see if that if, if it helps them, you mm-hmm. know, for a majority of people it does, but there are people that it just doesn't work for. Um, are there, or could you give a couple of examples of like, you know, pairing a certain food or foods to certain autoimmune conditions, just out of curiosity? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, well, gluten is a huge one. <laughs> sure. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> gluten, uh, I think in research, of course, celiac disease, uh, Hashimoto's, a lot of the thyroid, autoimmune thyroid diseases, um, 
And it can be really related to any autoimmune disease because it can trigger your immune system for a lot of people, even if you don't have any autoimmune disease, even if you're not gluten sensitive, it can trigger some people. Mm-hmm. So that's a, usually that's a really good place. I start with people, um, of course, with things like rheumatoid arthritis, you know, you want to look at the nightshades, um, and things like that. Dairy can also be a really big one too, for the autoimmune thyroid, uh, conditions. And so, yeah, usually those are kind of some of the ones there, there are some like kind of otter ones too. I'm trying to think of them off the top of my head, if I can remember, but you know, what I tell people is that these are immune, uh, intolerances. So a lot of times when you calm the immune system down, like you're able to tolerate these foods again. So, you know, it's not, for some people, it's not a forever thing, but it's not also not something that you can just like binge on like every day either, Mm -hmm. you know, once you calm your immune system down and get into remission. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, and just as you've been seeing, like what types of foods folks flare from, like, so let's say they're doing a you know pretty strict AIP diet and then, you know, they're feeling better. So they start phasing foods back in and then certain ones flare them. Certain ones don't, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, for example, um, I've treated like thousands of patients with SIBO to date. So when I'm seeing patients, you know, phasing foods back in, it's pretty rare that they'll react negatively to say sweet potato when they phase that back in, or it's pretty rare that they'll react to white rice, but it's very common, relatively speaking that, you know, they'll flare from brown rice uh, due to the higher fiber content, or I find quinoa is a trigger for a lot of folks or oats are a trigger Mm. for a lot of folks. Um, And so I'm just wondering if you've noticed experientially that like, oh, when patients are phasing back in their a on their AIP diet, like they tend to react more commonly to X, Y, or Z food, like whether it's, you know, eggs or nuts or seeds, or, or are there any kind of, uh, special ones that stand out, um, for what people are more likely to react to besides like say gluten and dairy, which are obviously big triggers for a lot of folks. Um, I think it varies, you know, mm-hmm. I haven't found like a common string that okay. everyone kind of reacts to when they go in. Like, or, and I don't mean, I don't mean everyone. I just mean like, oh. <laughs> Like, just like if you're like, oh, like just disproportionately, like for example, I, I don't think I've ever had a patient like react negatively to, I don't know, blueberries or something unless they have an oxalate oh, activity yeah. <laughs> too. So like, are there certain what foods that um, are just more that people react to more commonly when they're phasing um, off the diet? Um, let me think about this. We react to... Hmm. I think... I noticed some people react a little bit more to like nuts and seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's not always one that I will take out with AIP, but if I mm-hmm. see like they have a past history um, involving nuts or they just tell me that they don't do well with certain nuts, I'll just take mm-hmm. all of them out and have them reintroduce it. Sure. And sometimes then it, you know, it becomes more of a positive. They, they have a, they notice the symptoms with that. So right. nuts, nuts and seeds have been one. Um, sometimes some grains like corn, Mm-hmm. I notice people will will react to it too, or they'll just notice that they just don't feel as good when mm-hmm. they when they eat those types of foods. Okay. Yeah. Uh, amongst the different nuts, have you noticed like I know for me, I've seen um, cashews, which I guess yeah. are technically the seed of a fruit, um, but uh, we still kind of lump them into the nut category. Um, and my understanding is they're quite high in histamine. Like I've found that cashews maybe are a more common trigger for folks than other mm-hmm. nuts, but are, and then, you know, peanuts again, not actually a nut, actually a legume to my understanding, also high in histamine. Um, have you noticed certain nuts seem to be better or worse tolerated than others? 
Yeah. So I see a lot. So when I do the food immune uh, reactivity tests, I definitely see cashews come up for a lot of people, almonds mm -hmm. for a lot of people, which mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think those would be like the main two. I see, okay. of course, like, you know, actually I don't really see peanuts that much, which is mm -hmm. kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I see more cashews than almonds. Mm -hmm. Okay. Great. Yeah. Um, and just, I guess one last question kind of around the uh, diet side of things. Um, are you familiar uh, by chance with the work? I, I was meaning to double check his name, but I'm 99% sure it's Alan Christensen, um, ND. Yes. Yeah. Have you, um, tried like, uh, do you have any opinions or experience with like the super, super, uh, sorry for, for background reference for folks, Alan Christensen, uh, naturopathic doctor from the U S um, he has books and I don't remember the names off the top of my head, but easy to find online. Um, but basically the punchline is, um, working with a very, very low iodine diet. Um, he's, you know, reports really good success treating different thyroid conditions, including Hashimoto's. Um, so yeah, um, what's your opinion or experience with a low iodine protocol? Yeah. If, so when people come in with like Hashimoto's, um, it's definitely something I will consider. I don't, so it's, it's kind of a, I've been looking at research on that and I've had some people say like iodine, you know, it's more like excessive iodine that will trigger mm -hmm. these autoimmune thyroid conditions like Hashimoto's. Um, but it's not like iodine itself, you know, it's like the excessive mm -hmm. amount of it. So if I don't take iodine out completely, from their diet. But if they, you know, people are open to it and they want to do that, then I'm like, yeah, sure. Go for it. You know, we'll see, we'll see what happens, but I do still want them to get some iodine, but just like, again, just not excessive amounts. So if they are having a lot of iodine in their diet, then I will start to reduce that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not super, super familiar with his uh, low iodine diet. So I'm not sure what's in it, but you know, for, Hashimoto's, if that's something that they want to try, yeah, I'm open to it. And if it helps them, awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I don't know. Have you, have you tried it? Uh, I've recommended it to a few patients. Um, yeah, I was really fascinated by his book and, um, and then just on, uh, some of the, um, online clinician groups that I'm part of, like on Facebook clinician groups and whatnot, uh, just some, there were a couple of clinicians who were like, Oh, I've used this with quite a few patients. We've successfully like, you know, got rid of their, um, uh, antithyroid antibodies. Like they're doing great. It's like, Oh, wow. That's that's pretty great. Um, so I, I've recommended it for a few patients, um, not not that many. Um, and what was interesting because uh, Dr. Christensen talks about doing urine iodine testing, like I think it's first morning urine iodine testing. And what was interesting is the level of iodine, like so patients would go on a, you know, they test their baseline. And if it was, you know, too high based on sort of the criteria he sets out, then, um, you know, we'd look at their diet, look for sources of iodine. They'd go on a low iodine diet. We retest and some patients got their iodine down to like rock bottom low levels. And then some patients, um, no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't seem to get their iodine levels down to, you know, sort of a, a quote unquote acceptable level, um, which I thought was interesting because like yeah. we were, you know, they're, we just couldn't figure out where the heck the iodine was coming from. So I thought that was kind yeah. of interesting. And I don't know if they were storing lots of iodine or something. And I, I don't really know um, exactly how it all played out. But uh, with the patients, um, yeah, I didn't really, I had a couple of patients where there seemed to be some improvement, but um, it, not a huge number that I tried it with in the first place. And uh, some folks like tried it for a while and just didn't see any difference, but I don't think I have enough experience with it to really pass judgment on it. But I was just curious if it had come across your radar since you do a lot of autoimmune work, especially with Hashimoto's. So that's, thanks for the feedback on that. Um, one, one other question I have for you kind of getting off the topic of diet is, um, 
So as, as you're uh, well aware, um, you know, there's been research uh, uh, information in the research literature for a long time linking certain microorganisms to certain autoimmune conditions. Um, this for folks listening, there's this phenomenon called molecular mimicry, where essentially certain parts of microbes kind of look like certain parts of our bodies. And sometimes if those microbes are too prevalent or they get into the wrong places in the body, the immune system real, you know, starts to freak out, starts to make a response to them. And um, if the circumstances are just right, Right, or I guess just wrong from you know a patient perspective, then the immune system will say, oh, that body part of that microbe looks like that joint cell or that thyroid cell or whatever. And then suddenly the immune system starts reacting to the own person's own body. And of course that's autoimmunity. So the, there are these links between say, you know, the bacteria called um, Proteus um, mirabellus and uh, rheumatoid arthritis or mycoplasma pneumonia and rheumatoid arthritis or Klebsiella pneumonia and um, ankylosing spondylitis. And there's a bunch of these links. So again, just bacteria on fo- uh, history for folks listening. So I'm, I'm wondering in your experience, Dr. Nicole, have you found it to be important to um, treat for those, you know, causal microbes, or is it more that like they were a trigger and they kind of like set the fire, but then they ran away and just kind of left the aftermath and you don't really have to treat those microbes directly? Yeah, definitely both. So it just depends on what's going on with the patient. So if they have an active infection or like, you know, if I look at their labs and still see that they have some sort of chronic infection going on, Mm -hmm. then it's like, okay, we need to find that. And we need to take care of that and figure out what's going on. If, Mm -hmm. And then of course, treat that if they had an infection and yeah, they're, it's not really showing that they have an ongoing chronic infection or an active infection. Then it's like, okay, then that infection came, it triggered your immune system, Mm -hmm. (laughs) your immune system took care of it, but then it left kind of, like you said, this aftermath. And so now we have to deal with that aftermath Mm -hmm. and calm things down. And then also with those chronic infections, they also have cross reactions too. So They'll cross-react not just with certain organs or tissues in your body, but they could cross-react with like foods, other things you're eating, toxins, like you said, other infections. And so now we got to look for those things that could possibly be triggering that reactivation of your immune system, thinking that it's those infections. And then we have to take care of those and figure out what those are. So, um, and I'm sure you, you feel like this a lot too, when you work with your patients, it's a lot of times we're just detectives and we're doing a lot of trial and error, trying to figure out, okay, is this the thing that's triggering this and causing these symptoms? And okay, great. Like we figured that out. And if it's not, we're like, okay, we need to figure out what else is going on. Or maybe it's two things going on at the same time. We have to treat both at the same time. And that's what, that is what does it. And so I think it's a lot of, um, in my experience, it's a lot of trial and error. And I think explaining that also up front to patients like, Hey, you know, I don't know how your body's going to react to this, but this is what the direction I feel like we should go and where I think you would benefit. Are you, do you want to do that? Or would you rather do this instead? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously uh, engaging the patient in the process is really important because they're the ones that have to do all the work um, and yeah, yeah. Um, checking in. And I, I kind of like, I don't know. I I look at it from the perspective of, you know, when there's, um, you know, we, we, as you touched on, like, yes, there is trial and error, you know, it's, it's nice if we kind of flower it up by saying like, well, like, you know, our, our leading hypothesis is this, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. we're just really like with all the objective or all the evidence that's available based on our experience, we're just making our best guess in terms of like, what should we do next? Um, and thankfully, you know, objective lab tests help us to better guide those decisions, um, you know, as best we can, but it's also, I think just 
really speaks to the fact it's really important to be a, a really discerning, observant clinician because, you know, we need to be on the lookout for like, is this helping? Okay, if it's helping, great. What does that tell us about the next step? If the patient's not fully cured yet, you know, this is helping, but they're not 100% yet. Well, does that give us insight into what the next step probably should be? Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of touch and go and back and forth. It's, you know, I, I don't, I would never want this to be my practice, but I do every once in a while, like, you know, envy folks who just have like more of a like, you know, oh, we're just going to work on, I don't know, like not complex chronic health conditions, um, things that are more straightforward. Um, I think back to my earlier years in practice where like, I just had like simple cases, people getting better left, right and center. So easily it was like, oh, let's, you know, fix that IBS. Let's fix that chronic headache thing. But um, yeah, it's obviously very rewarding and more exciting to, you know, deal with complex chronic illness. But um, yeah, there, there's definitely that, that sort of back and forth. So how, how, how often do you find that, like, let's say patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which you said, you know, does make up a significant part of your practice, like, um, say for every hundred patients that walk through your, your door with RA, um, how often would you need to treat them for, you know, proteus in their gut or a systemic mycoplasma issue? Like, would it be 1% of the time? Would it be 50% of the time? Like how, how often would you need to actually treat infection? In my practice, it's actually a lot lower and it's, it's not because it's not there, but I think it's just because a lot of times they just don't get evaluated for it. You know, um, even if I make the suggestion, so I'm California, so, uh, my scope of practice is a little bit different mm -hmm. and I, I've been coming up against this a lot lately and it's, it's very frustrating for me and also the patient, but when I, either I will recommend them to get these labs done. Mm -hmm. you know, as a way to screen, to see if this is something that could be treating the rheumatoid arthritis. A lot of times they will take it back to their specialist, their doctor, and to get those tests. And a lot of times they will just tell them no, like they don't need that test. Mm -hmm. And so then sometimes when I try to order that test for them, the insurance will just deny it because they're like, they don't need that test. Like, why do they need this test? And so, right. you know, and then patients out of pocket testing they're like well i'm not able to do that at this time you know sure. so i think that's one of the frustrating parts when working with autoimmune diseases and chronic illnesses you know there there are all those things that you want to test and evaluate for that could be very helpful for them but you know there are those obstacles in the way and mm -hmm. you just have to work with the patient and be like okay well these are the options then that we have mm -hmm. let's try those and you know i think i think those are one of the one of the things that I'm really, I really get frustrated about, especially with testing and just people saying like, you don't need it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's, Yeah. I don't know if you come across that, but lately that's been my number one issue when it comes to screening for these things and just looking for these things for patients is just getting that feedback that they don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. It can be frustrating. And yeah, there's definitely things that we could say about both of our healthcare systems in our respective countries, um, I'm sure. But uh, that's that's a whole other podcast episode for another day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple more things I want to chat with you about because I, I uh, see the time's already winding down. It's uh, I need I need to go with like longer format podcasts, I think, because I could uh. talk to my guests for like a couple hours and I never have that much time booked. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was uh, just around like immunomodulators. So, you know, let, let's say you've got a hypothetical patient, you know, they've got, let's say rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you know, a lot of fatigue, a lot of pain. Um, let's say they're on some type of pharmaceutical medication that's, you know, helping, but not, you know, knocking it out of the park. Um, so some type of like, you know, methotrexate or something like that, um, to help settle things down. 
um, they're doing all the right things diet wise. Like let's say they're following, you know, strict autoimmune paleo and that's, that's helping mm -hmm. a bit, but not knocking it out of the park. They're exercising to the best of their ability. They're taking care of their, you know, mental, emotional health. They have a good family life, no trauma. Um, this is like a hypothetical yeah. patient because hard, hard to find patients <laughs> are fitting that bill. Unfortunately, a uh, tough world out there. Um, but, uh, so that things are covered that way. So they've got like all the, we'll say for argument's sake, like a lot of the good foundational pieces of the puzzle in place. Um, what would some of the, uh, therapeutics be, uh, what would be some of your go-to therapeutics to say, okay, we want to work to like further modulate the immune system to kind of start settling things down. Could you speak to some of those mm -hmm. interventions, please? Uh, well, I think it depends on what's activating the immune system. Mm -hmm. So what's triggering it, I think that would more determine what I would recommend to modulate the immune system. So say, for example, it's like toxins, right? Because mm -hmm. that can be a really big trigger for autoimmune. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, are you in a place where there's a lot of air pollution? Are you, um, you know, like in a city, like here in LA, a lot of air pollution. Are you on the 405 or on some freeway, like for two hours, like every day? Mm -hmm. Are you like, you know, in a house with mold? Mm -hmm. Are you um, getting exposed to a lot of plastics? Are you eating a lot of uh, pesticides and herbicides and things like that? So, you know, in that case, you know, we want to look at kind of like we talked about, again, like one of the things we can work on to modulate the immune system is just one to avoid the toxin, but we want to make sure that you are clearing those out, that your detox pathways are open and working on those, you know, if it's a chronic infection. And this is like getting a lot deeper. So um, like you said, past the foundational stuff, Again, it's like chronic infections. So do you have a chronic infection that's now stimulating your immune system? Okay, well, what is that? Is it a bacteria? Is it a virus? Is it parasites? And then we can go down that list of those treatment options, depending on what it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is it like hormones? You know, are your hormones whack? Like, are you going through some hormone issues? Are you know, did you just have a baby? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> are you going through like perimenopause? What's going on? And so, you know, are your hormones out of whack? And so now we got to look at, okay, we need to balance those because those can also flare up autoimmune diseases as well too. So mm -hmm. I think it just depends on for that specific person, what deeper um, mechanisms are involved and then working on modulating their immune system that way. Uh, but if they're like certain herbs, I don't know. I love herbs. Herbs are, are kind of my jam. I, I really like them. So there's certain herbs that work really well to help uh, modulate your immune system and a lot of things that you can just do naturally as well mm -hmm. too and i just want to oh and antioxidants love 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 antioxidants like you just i feel like people just can't get enough antioxidants so you know if i have to choose one thing i don't know if it's very immune modulating but i think it is because it helps with inflammation but antioxidants like just load up on that although this is not medical advice <laughs> no 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 yeah <laughs> Theoretically, talk to your doctor about um, loading up on antioxidants. Yes. Maybe. Um, what, are, what are some What are some of the um, herbs that uh, you find to be helpful for immunomodulation? Um, I love curcumin. I think a lot of I don't know. I just I love curcumin. For some people, I just load them up on that. Mm -hmm. um, let me let me think. I think I, I use a lot of adrenal herbs as well too. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's very immune modulating, but they do affect the immune system. So, you know, like astragalus, mm -hmm. um, things like that. And what else do I use? My brain is like going to acute immune things. <laughs> so I was thinking about a lot of lung herbs, like mm -hmm. elecampane and, you know, it's kind of going there, but those are more for acute things, um, like infections and things like that. 
but I'm trying to think of just general herbs I use. My brain just kind of have a went a blank. Wait, what herbs do you use? Maybe that'll start triggering me a little bit more. Um, I mean, for immunomodulators, um, Chinese skullcap, um, is probably at the top Oh, that's of my a good list. one. Um, Mm a Japanese knotweed is an immunomodulator. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I tend to kind of be a little more biased towards like the herbs that sort of overlap with treating chronic infections like Lyme and co-infections and things like that as well. Um, uh, kudzu, um, is
<laughs> Thank you. Um, but I've heard of um, vitamin D receptor. Um, uh, shoot, what was that word you just said? Resist resistance. Yes, resistance. Thank you. Yeah, See, okay. people, we forget things. <laughs> but yes, I've heard of that before, specifically for Hashimoto's patients. Hmm. They've been finding that that has been something I think with current research they've been looking into. Okay. And it's definitely a thing that I've seen with a lot. I mean, not resistance, but just vitamin D, low vitamin D. And I'm talking about like lab low vitamin D that mm. I've seen in a lot of autoimmune patients, like a lot. Mm -hmm. Either it's deficient or insufficient. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very rare that I've seen an autoimmune patient when they first come in and their vitamin D is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, but what is this resistance? Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Um, and uh, actually, I, there's not many folks out there. Um, like I, I put out, you know, sort of feelers out to the, some of the online clinician groups I'm part of, like got a bunch of crickets. Um, but uh, there's one uh, practitioner in BC who I, I connected with, and she's been very generous with her time, you know, answering my emails. We spoke on, you know, spoke on Zoom the other day, and she's actually, I'm going to interview her in about three weeks for this podcast to talk about it. So so stay tuned, oh, folks, cool. uh, to listen to that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll send you the link to the journal article. And yeah, it's really fascinating. But the, the punchline with it is that, uh, in my, my understanding of it is they presume that it's due to um, uh, uh, mutations in the vitamin D receptor gene. So, you know, those of us that mm -hmm. look at genomic profiles, like the VDR yeah. SNPs, um, and that yeah. that ultimately makes the receptor not be as sensitive to the vitamin D. And so the, the treatment for it is to take um, very, very high doses of vitamin D in order to get the receptor to start working properly, essentially, or kind of supersaturating the system. So the receptor is kind of forced to start working. And there's a really, I think, ingenious um, lab metric that's used. So it's looking at the ratio of vitamin D and parathyroid hormone, which you and I both know controls serum calcium levels. And so essentially what you're doing is titrating up the vitamin D until it um, is shown to suppress the parathyroid hormone level sufficiently to tell us that, oh, the receptor is actually working. Because if you have high levels of vitamin D and high levels of parathyroid hormone, then it means that, oh, the signal is just not being transmitted properly because if the vitamin D is high, PTH should be really, really low. So that's kind of the, that's sort of the uh, ins and outs of it um, to my understanding. So we it just came across oh. my radar maybe like four or five months ago. So I've been, you know, we've been doing the testing for a lot of patients Some patients have started on the protocol. So it's still kind of early days for me. Um, but most of the, this paper that was published by these German researchers a year ago about this Coimbra protocol, um, it's all about autoimmune conditions. So right up your alley, mm -hmm. Dr. Nicole. So I'll pass that yeah. on to you. And um, yeah, the you. doc I was talking to, she said it's just been a game changer for her practice. So I'm excited to pick her brain a little bit more um, in a few weeks and, um, you know, share more oh, information cool. with listeners. But uh, yeah, so anyways, I'll, I'll send that link to you after we finish chatting. Um, oh, awesome. Thank you. So you're, you're welcome. My pleasure. Um, well, the one thing I have to ask you about, um, because via social media, I learned that you um, do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, as I do yeah. as well. Um, and so uh, awesome. could, could you uh, just uh, quickly uh, either like do a plug for why people should, everybody should do Brazilian jiu-jitsu because it's amazing or how, uh, I don't know how you got into jiu-jitsu. Can you just say something about it? Cause I, I never have, I've never had a chance to talk about jiu-jitsu on the podcast. Uh, it's oh, never came up organically right. before. So would you mind uh, just <laughs> talking about BJJ for, you know, one minute uh, or so? Please. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So I love it. I probably will keep doing it for the rest of my life. 
um, I started it because I actually stopped dating this guy. He was actually really rude and uh, pretty much ghosted me. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do jujitsu. <laughs> so, good, good revenge. Uh, I, yeah, I was driving past the jujitsu place like almost every day for like years. And I think that was just finally the catalyst that I was like, I'm going to do this for me because mm. I wanted to do this. And I, it was scary, you know, because it's a lot of men usually that is in awesome. there. And I thought, oh, no, it's just going to be like a, a bro fest and it's just going to be um, very intimidating. But when I started, it actually wasn't. And they're very uh, conscious about that. And so they really make an effort to make the women there feel comfortable and make sure that, you know, um, they feel comfortable in those spaces. And I really appreciate that. And I've learned so much. I love it. And there was actually a post that I put on my Instagram where there was someone who said she had an autoimmune disease and she started BJJ and she went into remission. <laughs> there we go. It's the new yeah. autoimmune cure. That's amazing. Yeah. So, and she was in a lot of pain folks. She was like, she was in a lot of pain, like everything hurt. And for some reason, like her friend convinced her to do BJJ and she was like, the pain started going away. Uh, her autoimmune went into remission. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah, you guys, if you haven't tried it, do it. There's like, there's um, schools out there that they'll take you step by step. So don't think you'll just get thrown in there and you have to like choke someone out. You, that's not going to happen, you know? <laughs> They'll take you step by step. You don't worry. One <laughs> percent of people are going to be disappointed that you said that. It's like, oh, I wanted to choke somebody out on the first day, but I think most people will be relieved to hear you don't have to choke anybody out on the first day. That's, that's yeah. Good. Sorry to disappoint the one percent, but okay, they'll, they'll be fine. Um, yeah, yeah. That's. I that's, mean, you might. You you might. Yeah, you, you never know. know. The first yeah. school I started training at, actually, it was pretty much just throw you into the fire. It was uh, it was it was it was yeah. pretty intense. But um, I've trained at several different schools, and uh, yeah, all of them except for that one, it's been yeah very uh, methodical. Um, and, and I've had the same experience kind of by proxy, like just seeing that um, there's a really good culture around like if you know men are training mm -hmm. with women, it's it's yeah been very respectful and appropriate and all of that. And 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 a lot of the gyms, maybe not a lot, but some of the gyms do have you know women only classes if that's if that's someone's yes. preference too. So, but yes. uh, yeah, well, well thank, thank you for speaking to the BJJ. That's uh, I appreciate yeah, it. Do it folks. It's, it's worth so it. much fun. It's worth it. If it's, yeah. if it's uh, something you want to try. Um, so yeah. Dr. Nicole, um, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Um, just before we wrap up here, could you just let folks know um, how they can uh, get a hold of you if they want to work with you or if you have any um, online offerings? Um, I, I believe you have a book that I, I saw um, a link to on your yeah. Instagram page. So could you uh, share a bit? Uh, whatever you pass on here, I'll put in the show notes. So uh, patients or uh, folks rather can oh, <laughs> listeners can access this. So, um, <laughs> uh, what, what, thank what you. Yes. <laughs> you can find me on on Instagram at Dr. Nicole ND. And you can also, and I have a link to everything that I have available, all the offerings I have right now. I have a 21 day program that I'm going to be starting soon. So for anyone who's interested in those things and anyone interested in working with me, you can find all that information there in my bio. And you can also contact me via my website, which is just Dr. Nicole, or sorry, Dr. Fujiyama ND.com. And there you can reach out to me, or if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, -on -one, then it has information for you there to follow as well too, and to get in touch with us and we can start that process. Wonderful. And could you just say your Instagram handle one more time? It kind of glitched for a second. I just want to make sure folks can, can hear it. Oh, sure. It's at Dr. Nicole ND. 
Perfect. Wonderful. And I, I almost said dot com, but like, <laughs> I was like, that's why there's like that word pause. I was like, wait, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, there's there's too many extensions and things. Yeah. So a lot to keep track of. And and you're you're not on any other social media platform, just the just the Instagram. Is that right? Um well I I am on TikTok okay. and I believe that the handle is the same. Okay. But majority of a lot of the information I put is on Instagram. So okay. but I am on TikTok, so you can find me there as well too. Okay. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for joining me today, Dr. Thank Nicole. So it was much. a great chat and uh, hopefully we can do this yeah, again sometime. So much fun. Yes. Thank great. you so much. Thank okay, you everyone. Pleasure. Yes. Thanks everybody. Um, this concludes another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. So thanks everyone and stay tuned until next time.